0: G'day and welcome to another edition of Stick Together, bringing you union news, workers' stories and discussion on social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country on the Community Radio Network. I'm Matt Conkle. On the show this week, we'll take a look at two big disputes that have happened over the January period. New South Wales rail workers have signalled their intention to take the first network-wide stoppage in that state since 1999. New South Wales rail workers have signalled their intention to take the first network-wide stoppage in that state since 1999. As the date of the proposed stoppage draws near, we speak with the New South Wales Secretary of the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, Alex Classens. We also bring you the story of Fijian baggage handlers who were locked out last December, sparking an international campaign. But first, some union news. In the latest twist in the dispute at the Port Kembla Coal Terminal, leaked documents have revealed the company's proposed plan to sack up to a third of its workers, casting further doubts on the company's good faith during the enterprise agreement negotiations. The terminal is operated by a number of coal businesses located in the Illawarra region, including Glencore, who have also locked out miners from one of their Queensland-based coal mines in Oakey North. In addition to locking out approximately 60 workers for five days, the company has also applied to terminate the enterprise agreement. The leaked documents, which are memos from 2016, demonstrate that the terminal operators were planning to seek the end of the current agreement in favor of the minimum standards in the award even while negotiations for a new agreement were continuing. The workers at the terminal have been trying to negotiate a new agreement with their boss for three years now, and the union has previously said that they did not believe the company was interested in actually negotiating a new agreement, that it instead had a plan to deunionize and strip conditions. These leaked documents demonstrate that increasingly bosses are reading from the same playbook, gaming the industrial relations legislation to avoid directly dealing with the power of workers. Approximately 100 workers at Australian Papers Factory in suburban Melbourne are on strike after enterprise agreement negotiations continue to produce no results. Members of the printing division of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union have been trying to negotiate an enterprise agreement now for more than nine months. The company is refusing to budge from an offer that includes a wage freeze and the loss of a quarter of the workers' rostered days off. Calling the issue to a head, the members have declared an indefinite stoppage. Here's union delegate Margaret with more information.
1: They're trying to take our um, RDOs and they're trying to grandfather our wages and they're trying to take our conditions away from us that we've fought for over these years.
0: And in return for that, what are they offering as far as a pay rise goes?
1: Zero, two, two and two and a half.
0: Basically, there's a situation here where the company's trying to both take away your conditions, freeze your pay and then provide less than inflation pay increases. What does that mean for the workers here if if the company was to get its way?
1: Um, I think a lot of people would leave Um, and like it'd just be hard like, yeah, I just feel like disrespected and um, feel like a number basically.
0: And how are the members feeling? Are they ready to go one day longer?
1: Oh, They're ready to go for three weeks longer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can support the workers by visiting them at 54 Raglan Road, Preston. New South Wales Ministers for Road, Maritime and Freight, Melissa Pavey, has been condemned by the Transport Workers Union after her suggestions that electric shocks for fatigued truck drivers could be one answer to the state's dramatic increase in truck-related road deaths. The minister's comments come after a shocking start to 2018, including six heavy vehicle accidents in one day alone. There has been a 45% increase in the number of truck-related road deaths since Minister Pavey's federal Liberal colleagues abolished the Road Safety and Remuneration Tribunal. The RSRT was set up to address the long, unsafe hours drivers are forced to work due to miserably low pay in the sector. It's no surprise that without the safe rates set out by the tribunal that we have seen a marked increase in the number of truck-related deaths climb. With some drivers being forced to work up to 17 hours a day just to make a living, both they and their vehicles are being pushed past the limits. Instead of addressing the pressures on transport workers, the Liberal government in New South Wales is looking at further crackdowns on the workers, including tougher penalties and licence restrictions. But the Transport Workers Union is linking the increase of these incidents to the loss of the RSRT, claiming that it warned the government prior to its abolition that such an increase would occur, and have made further calls for a return of the watchdog.
2: You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news.
0: New South Wales rail workers are set to hold the very first complete stoppage of the network in almost 20 years. The Rail, Tram and Bus Union have called the stoppage in response of the failure of the rail operators and the New South Wales government to finalise negotiations for a new enterprise agreement. This increasingly acrimonious dispute has been playing out on the front pages and morning television programs, with both sides accusing the other of being the cause of the problem. Last Friday, the Minister and the Union held their very first face-to-face meeting since the dispute began. To find out more, we spoke with the New South Wales State Secretary of the RTBU, Alex Classens, just after this meeting. So Alex, thanks for joining us. If this dispute's not resolved by the 29th of January, this would be the first railway strike in New South Wales since 1999. Being that strike action is the most strong action workers can take, it's clear this is a serious dispute. How did it get to this point?
1: We started the process, as you always do, uh, six months ago. We put a log of claims on the table, and part of that log from the members was... A whole range of issues around master roster changes, uh, conditions that we were looking to get because we've got a minister at the moment that's trying to privatise everything. And so we were looking for trying to get protections on passes and a whole range of issues. And as always, we put a pay claim on the table that said, look, we're going to start at 6% per year. So we started the process and, uh, and we were negotiating every week and we were led by the Union's New South Wales where we have... There's six unions all together sitting at the table. Uh, we've all got members in the uh, in the uh, in the industry, and of course our union's the biggest. We've got about 80% of the membership in there. Uh, so we were uh, all sitting together, being negotiating in good faith with the agencies now. We've actually got two agencies at the table. We've got New South Wales trains and Sydney trains. The complexity of this, though, meant that we were now negotiating with a group of people at a table that aren't able to make any decisions of any real description when when you needed to rely on government to make that call. So we're sitting there negotiating maybe with the head of the agency, but whenever it came to talk about anything of significance, like money, the answer was always, we've got a government wages package, you need to talk to government about that. So we were doing that for about six months. We've been going backwards and forwards, and every day we'd sit there and they'd say, Oh, we've got to go away and get permission for this. That was fine, we were used to that. We've been doing this a long time, we were happy to play those games while ever the EA was still on foot. However, obviously, the closer we got to the expiry of the EA, which happened in September, Last year, people, of course, started putting a lot more pressure on and saying we need some answers. The angst amongst the membership was getting more and more as it looked like we were going to run out of an agreement. The other complication we had was that in the last enterprise negotiation, we negotiated a deed of agreement, which included some specifics around redundancy and redeployment, and in particular, a 64-week redundancy package in the event that the person is asked to leave the agency. So that was sitting there as well. And so members were getting pretty antsy about all of that, saying, look, we're still losing some of our jobs, they're cutting our positions, they're bringing in contractors. So that's the enterprise agreement process. And so that was running along the usual traditional lines, with only the difference being this time, that we weren't negotiating with anybody that can make a decision, really. And we've been doing that all along. So added to that, we were also starting to have a problem because the Minister had decided he was going to introduce a new timetable in November of this year. And I was getting lots of nervous phone calls from people saying he wants to implement this new timetable, they're going to do this massive uplift of services, going to run all these extra trains. Uh, We've got a problem. One is we don't have sufficient crew to be able to work it, and two, we don't have enough trains. So... Anyway, we tried to go to the government and say, look, you shouldn't be introducing this new timetable. We're not ready for it yet. Um, But however, it all fell on deaf ears.
0: So you've got the frustration from the government in the bargaining process, and you've also got a government that is unilaterally handing down big changes to the workforce. And then blaming the workforce. And then blaming them when it all goes wrong, yeah. But you've also got a state government that's pursuing an aggressive agenda of privatisation and particularly privatising aspects of the public transport network. After seeing what's happened with the privatisation of Queensland Rail, how much of this dispute is based around future-proofing the livelihoods of your members in case privatisation becomes a reality?
1: That was certainly our concern. I was here many years ago when we had a previous uh, Liberal government came in and we lost 6,000 members out of our industry because of uh, a guy called Nick Greiner. Uh, we knew that this Liberal government in New South Wales would take out our membership. We lost 4,000 members uh, as a result of this government. And this government has been making decisions. They privatised transport in Newcastle. Uh, our, members, our bus driver members up there were forced onto a private bus company. We've also got this Minister about to make an announcement about the privatisation of Region 6 of Sydney buses. All those things are in our heads. Yes, part of our log of claims was the retention of certain public sector conditions, because we know that the minute they get privatised, the first thing that goes is some of those conditions. So, yes, they were all on the table. They were all part of the package, because we do want to protect our members' livelihoods and our conditions, and uh, you know we make no apology for that, but... We have always tried to maintain a good, safe operating railway, and we've just been totally frustrated by this government that just seeks to destroy us. And, look, the other thing was this minister also went to some conference and openly stated that it's his view that in 20 years' time there'll be no drivers employed by the government because he's going to have driverless trains and buses, etc., etc. So he's on the public record of saying all that stuff, and so naturally enough when he starts coming out and attacking our workers, our members, then uh, our members say, enough's enough. And so we followed the industrial relations process. We went to the commission. We got permission from the the commission to take our industrial action. We agreed as part of that process that we would provide as much notice as we could for uh, for the community. So we actually agreed to seven days' notice plus the weekend. So it's the longest period that I've ever known a union to agree to. Mm. Um, so, nine days. So, And again, the other day, we were at the negotiating table, we were getting nowhere, and my members just said, look, enough's enough. You've got to tell people, if you want to take action, this is when it's going to have to happen. And so, the 29th of January was chosen by us as doing everything to met what I had always said to the public. I will give you as much notice as possible. I will try and put it on a day where it has the, the least impact. So... For those people who don't know, uh, because they might be in another state, uh, that Monday is actually a pupil free day for us, so the school kids haven't gone back to school yet, people are still on holidays in essence, So um, and it becomes a four-day weekend for us, because obviously the Friday is an Australia Day weekend, if you then have the Monday because you can't come to work, then uh, most people will use it as an opportunity to have four days off. But
0: it Sounds like, like you're like doing I- everybody a favour.
1: Well, at one level, I I guess I'm trying to, but look, the reality is we do want everybody to sit up and take notice. It's disappointing that the first time we get to meet the minister is today, when today is our first day of action.
0: There's been the usual worker bashing in the right-wing press. The the old train drivers are paid too much, they're greedy, they're lazy, they all earn $150,000 a year. You've been a train driver for almost 40 years. Can you give listeners a sense of what it's like to work in a 24-hour industry like public transport?
1: Look, it's always been a very difficult job. I mean, uh, we're, we're social pariahs at one level. I mean, we don't work regular shift work. We're not like anybody else. Uh, we could sign on, on duty today at 2 o'clock in the morning. Tomorrow, we're on at 7 o'clock. The day after, we could be on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or midnight. So we've always worked irregular shift work. It's a solitary job, it's, you're out there on your own, you're doing all this stuff, uh, and it's hard. And it's, is, it, is it appropriate that we should be paid a reasonable wage? Absolutely. All the things that we give up on, and don't forget, in addition to that, you know, most of us have had at least one fatality in our lifetime, but we are faced with a lot of pressures out there, and the same with the train crew. We deal with people sometimes not at their best. The Minister's been quoting that we're getting 113000 That's not correct either. I mean, it can be if he includes the 9.5% superannuation and everything. I I suspect that that's what it is. It's a total package. Uh, $20,000 of that is overtime and shift work. So the average train driver in Sydney, suburban train driver, is on about $75,000 a year. They earn about 10 grand extra for shift work, they earn about 10 grand extra for overtime, and that's the rate. Now, I don't think that that's unrealistic. I think that's a you know, I think for us to say they want they should be paid more, they should be paid better, I think is realistic and I think it's it would be fair. We don't like it when governments and ministers use us as a political football.
0: Yeah, and Alex, you've been highly critical of Transport Minister Andrew Constance. Can you give us a bit more of an idea about what role he and the government have been playing in this dispute?
1: Look, uh, like I said, today was the first time that we've actually got to meet Andrew Constance. I mean, up until now, him and I have been trading blows in the media. You know, he tried to uh, to say that he the door was always open for me and all the rest of it. But he couldn't even get, like, when I first responded to him, I said, look, you can't just talk to me. I am not the only union. There are six unions involved in this. There are other members out there. It's not all about my union. It's about all the railway workers that are out there. You've got to talk to all of us. And so, you know, he's gradually coming to the table. He's gradually understanding it. Certainly today when we met with him, he seemed to be a lot more conciliatory. He seems to understand now what the problem is. Uh, He did realise and he got the report back that we had a long meeting the other day for a full day. We had a workshop which addressed all the concerns of the new timetable. Uh, We sat down honestly and openly with his senior management team and we raised a whole range of issues which they need to go away and have a look at so we can fix the timetable and we can implement it gradually as we need to when we've got the resources to be able to do it. So he's now got the message that we are prepared to work on things and try and put our system back in order so we can continue to do the job that we should be doing, and that is providing a safe, efficient railway system for the people in New South Wales.
0: And the RTBU's commenced low-level industrial activity in the lead-up to the strike on the 29th of January. Can you tell us what the escalation looks like in in the time between now and the 29th?
1: Today we're doing our badge day uh, and uh, so today's the 19th and we're doing our, we're doing a badge day, we've got our union delegates all wearing their union shirt. As of next Thursday, we will then commence our overtime bans, which for train crew means they will just claim their days off. So they will continue working their daily overtime uh, if there's an emergency and they require train drivers and guards to work a bit longer, they will, but they will claim their days off. So where currently they're only having their 12 in 14 days, um, they will go to their full you know, 10 in 14. They'll, have, they'll claim their four days off. Uh, for a lot of our other members in the, uh, the railway industry, they will actually refuse to work uh, shift overtime, so they won't work any more overtime at all. And then, like we know, uh, Monday the 29th, so the Sunday night before at midnight on the 28th, uh, we will be putting all the trains to bed in the depots, and they won't come out again until, you know, the early hours of the Tuesday morning after the stoppage.
0: As the industrial pressure mounts and the date of the stoppage draws near, how confident are you that last-minute negotiations may see a favourable outcome for your members?
1: Look, uh, I think what will happen is as we get closer to the date that we're going to stop the trains altogether, I think government will come to the table. I think government will put an offer on the table.
0: Alex, do you have a message for any of the listeners out there who may either be from Sydney or visiting on the 29th?
1: My message to not only the, uh, the commuters of uh, New South Wales but to any visitor that comes to, to New South Wales on the day is, uh, look, you know, make sure you do your homework. Um, we've got a, a fairly handy app in New South Wales called TripView. Um, I would encourage everybody to do as much homework as you can to see what the services are that are actually going to be running. If our strike action goes ahead, all you will get running is buses and uh, the ferries. And, uh, you know, we're going. it's very hard to get around Sydney without uh, any sort of trains running at all, I have to say. It's, uh, it's a very, very difficult task. We will. I will. My union will. We, and the unions in New South Wales will do everything we can to try and restore the service. But we do, do want people to recognise the fact that we are workers. We are rail workers. We want to be respected in our job. Uh, we want to do our jobs properly. We want to be able to continue to do that. But we need to have a minister and a government that recognises our work.
0: Alex, thanks very much for joining us on Stick Together.
2: No worries. Thank you, Matt. Stick together. Stick together. Yeah. Stick, yeah.
0: together.
2: Stick, together. Stick, together. Stick, Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. We're going to go to the capital this time. We're going to go back to the capital. We'll show them
1: that the crowd's going to be bigger than this one next time. Yeah. And, and, And we will be asking all our unions, all our unions, to start thinking about a national strike. Let's shut this country down if we have to. Today 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 we just shut down Nandy Town. Just today we shut down Nandy Town. We're gonna shut down bigger things to come. If if we don't get a resolution to this, this is we're prepared to go as long as it takes us.
0: That was the leader of the Fiji Trade Union Congress, Felix Anthony, speaking at a rally in support of the more than 200 workers locked out by Fijian Baggage Handling Corporation (ATS) On the 16th of December 2017, these service and maintenance workers were locked out after attending a one-hour union meeting. The lockout continued for weeks, escalating into a large international campaign to have the workers return to work. On Saturday, the 20th of January, a Fijian judge ordered that ATS must end the lockout and compensate the workers for their lost wages. In the lead-up to this court decision, we spoke with International Transport Workers' Federation's Asia-Pacific Women's Representative Michelle Myers about the dispute. Michelle, can you give us some information about the events that led up to the lockout?
2: So apparently uh, the workers have, um, at the uh, airport in um, Nandy have been, you know, fighting for uh, new agreement, uh, pay rises and that sort of thing, uh, you know, for a very long time. Uh, there's been some issues with harassment. There's been bullying, uh, sexual harassment and, um, and all sorts of issues um, in that workplace. So they've been fighting for a, for a while, and they went to a union meeting on the sixteenth of December. Uh, I think they're only gone for an hour and when they came back, they were uh, locked out of their workplace.
0: What are the workers' demands?
2: the workers' demands obviously they they need a pay rise they haven't had a pay rise for eleven years um, they They just want decent wages and conditions and their their uh, their demands aren't that overly excessive it's just that um they just went to have a meeting and now they're locked out. So now their demands are different. They want their jobs back.
0: So there's been some talk in media reports that this is an illegal lockout. Can you shed any light on that?
2: It is an illegal lockout. Under the actual the, the laws of Fiji, it's, it's an illegal lockout. But the, the minister's not declaring that and he should be doing so immediately. And that's one of our demands that we passed over to the consulate today.
0: There's been a series of demonstrations across Fiji. What's the situation on the ground over there?
2: So uh, the workers are staying strong. Um, they're they're still picketing at um, Nandi Airport. They've had uh, a massive rally last Saturday um, in in Nandi. Uh, people came from all over, all sorts of trade unions. Um, there was some intimidation for them to attend that rally. They were they were pulled over and and there were some uh, traffic stops by the police and that sort of thing, um, which you know is pressure on people that they don't need when all they want to do is go and support their comrades and that are locked out, but um, yeah, so they've, they've been quite successful. They've had a great rally over there, which was followed on uh, later on with the New Zealand rally to do the same, and now, of course, we did ours today to um, to support them.
0: So speaking about the minister not declaring an illegal lockout and also some of the repression we've seen, Um, The Fijian Prime Minister has also called the leader of the Fijian trade union movement a big joke and a B-grade actor. Can you tell us a bit more about what role the government is playing or not playing in this dispute?
2: The government can fix this. They are part of, uh, it is a government-owned organisation, ATS. They could step in, they could fix this immediately. Anything that's come out of Prime Minister Banimurama's mouth is, is, is theatre and it's drama and that's not helping anyone. Um, you know, having a go at the leader of the trade union movement is not helping 220 workers that are sitting on the grass with no jobs and having trouble paying, you know, feeding their families and paying their bills.
0: At the rally last week, the leader of the Fijian trade union congress threatened a general strike in support of the workers. Do you expect that this campaign will continue to escalate industrially in Fiji?
2: Look, I, uh, I think the people of Fiji have had enough, and I think that they're ready to, uh, to escalate this further to fight for these workers and, and also decent conditions in their own workplaces. Um, I think uh, whatever the trade union movement decides over there um, would be, you know, to escalate this is, is a good thing, and uh, as, you know, we will fully support them, of course. Yeah, I, I definitely see an escalation because you know, it could be so easily fixed, but it's just not.
0: And the ITF is running a international campaign around this dispute. What support have the Fijian workers received from their comrades internationally?
2: We're starting to mobilise globally for uh, for the Fijians. Obviously, we started in New Zealand and um, Sydney today because you know we're we're regional partners, we're we're close friends, um, and it's very important that we step out. and We all have always supported Fiji. This will escalate and it will go around. Um, London office has issued a statement, and obviously the letter we delivered today uh, to the Fijian consulate was from the ITF President Paddy Crumlin. So this will spread um, right around the world and we'll we will do what we need to do to support them.
0: The company that these workers are employed by, are they in uh, negotiations at all with the, with the unionists?
2: So I understand that there, um, there will be a meeting in a couple of days um, with, the, um, with the workers and, and their representatives. Um, hopefully, you know, we might see some sort of resolution out of that. Look, I'd hate to say that this is not um, this isn't close to being finished because it could so easily be rectified. You know, the government can step in now the ministers can, can declare an illegal lockout. They can do all sorts of things to, to fix this. Uh, all the workers want to do is go back to work. They want no loss of pay for the time that they've been locked out. They want assurance that no worker is going to be victimised. Uh, and they want a cost of living adjustment applied to the end of the 11-year pay... You know, they had a pay freeze for 11 years. Um, and they want an agreed timeline to resolve their other issues. These are really simple demands that, that ATS management could fix now. And the government could certainly support.
0: In the last 12 to 18 months in Australia, we've seen increased employer militancy in the form of lockouts. Now we're seeing it around the rest of the world. Is this a trend that the International Transport Workers' Federation is finding in its areas?
2: I think we're. I think we're all seeing it. You know, the trade union movement as a whole is seeing that that lockout is a new business model for employers who aren't getting their own way. You know, if, if negotiations are going bad or if they're going on too long or. Or they just don't want to agree to to workers' demands. They just lock them out or cancel agreements. And, and, you know, this is just not, uh, you know, what we want to see for workers of the world. And uh, obviously um, we'll continue to fight that.
0: Michelle Myers, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Matt. On the 20th of January, a Fijian court found that the lockout was indeed illegal and required ATS put the workers back to work within 48 hours. The announcement was welcomed by assembled workers with representatives congratulating the members and there were thank yous to other unions for their support as the carver was passed around. The workers would be both returned to work and be compensated for lost wages during the lockout. We end our story with the celebrations held just after the announcement was handed down. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Stick Together. Thanks for listening. This show is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country by the Community Radio Network. This show is supported financially by the Community Broadcasting Federation and by listeners like you. So if you want to keep workers' stories on the air, call your local community radio station today and subscribe. If you want to get in touch with the producers of this show, you can call us on 9419837 or drop us a line at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Facebook by searching Stick Together Program. We'd love to get your feedback. The podcast of this episode and other recent shows can be found at www.3cr.org.au forward slash together Finally, remember, no matter where you are or what you do, there is a union for you. I've been Matt Conkle. Until next time, stick together.